0: Evan Lazar here, Patriots insider and host of the Patriots Beat Podcast here on the CLNS Media Network. As always, our content is powered by our exclusive wagering partners, betonline.ag. Use the promo code CLNS50 for 50% off your welcome deposit. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. The Patriots Beat Podcast here on the CLNS Media Podcast Network. I'm Evan Lazar joined as always by Alex Barth. And today we are going to do a live Q&A edition of the show. So go right ahead, you know the drill, and ask your questions in the chat. And we'll get to as many as we can over the next half an hour, 45 minutes or so. We'll do the Boston Sportsman at the end, and we'll talk about the Celtics or lament about the Celtics a little bit towards the end of the show. But we're going to start with Patriots, as we always do. So if you have questions, get them in the chat, and we will answer as many as we possibly can can here uh, for the next 30 plus minutes or so but I wanted to start as people file in and start to ask questions Alex with I guess the news of the week so far which was Jacoby Myers officially Tristan <laughs> Oh, Jacobi Jacoby Myers said. officially signing his one-year RFA tender on Monday Myers talked to us last week at midi camp said that he was going to go back and deliberate with his agent drew Rosenhaus and kind of figure out what his best path forward was but that they were hoping to maybe hammer out an extension to avoid playing on the tender it didn't sound like it got close enough to any point where Myers was going to push off signing the tender there was also a deadline for June 15th they could have lowered the salary if he hadn't signed it by then I, I don't know if the Patriots would have gone that route in good faith it's not exactly uh the way that You have a good faith negotiation, but it was something that they would have in their back pocket at that point in time. Not a surprise that Myers has signed the tender, but looking forward to possibly extending Jacoby Myers beyond this season. I think it's an interesting conversation to have about... His value, not just to the Patriots, but relative to the rest of the league. And we've seen the Christian Kirks of the world and the wide receiver market get a little bit nutty. Uh, you especially look at some of the deals that guys like Marquez Valdez-Scantling, Russell Gage, uh, Zay Jones, those are some of those mid-tier wide receivers that signed in the last uh, calendar year here in the 2022 free agency period. They're all getting eight to $10 million a year in terms of average annual value somewhere is between 12 and a to $20 million that being guaranteed a pretty nice payday for Jacoby Myers to go from a UDFA to making a deal. That's worth a total value of potentially $30 million over three seasons. But the question is for the Patriots and, and that we're going to present here on the show, should the Patriots be interested in signing a long-term extension with Jacoby Myers? That is, pushing the $10 million per year mark because that's that's the that's the number, right? That's where his market is going to be. I think that's where Drew Rosenhaus is going to try to get is that three for 30 figure is kind of the ceiling of his market, but at the minimum he's looking at twenty to twenty-four million dollars total over a three-year period. Are you in on that for Jacoby Myers or not? Pro what was the give me your number
1: again exactly because you just said a million numbers.
0: <laughs> I would say that his floor is three for 24, his ceiling is three for 30. So what was the rent for deal again? The rent for deal was over 30. I think he got three for 36. I want to say three for
1: 36. So here's here's the thing to me. I, I if you're gonna so you said eight to ten million, like that's a big difference to me. Eight Per, yeah, that's probably about right. I do think he still has uh, I got to correct it. Uh, the Renfro got two for 32. Two for 32, okay. so that, uh, His number so, was 16. So I'll say why I brought that up in a second. Yeah. Like, I to me, Myers is like the seven to eight range. It's like the top end of his range. When you're getting a 10, you're pushing it because the lack of versatility. would would, would kill right. Shacoa Myers is his lack of yard after catch ability. Now, if he comes out this year and it turns out the, the muscle he added makes him much better after the catch, completely different story. The reason I bring up the Renfro deal, though, and I, I I wouldn't do two over thirty-two for Jacoby, I wouldn't. But I, if you look at the numbers overall between Jacoby Myers and Hunter Renfro, they're actually very comparable, especially when you do it on a per game basis. However, that's skewed because Jacoby Myers didn't do it on his rookie year, but his you know his last two years have been pretty much equal. He's been relatively the same player, very consistent. Yeah. Hunter Renfro didn't really do much until last year. He had a breakout year. He doubled his yard, his catches, nearly doubled his yards. So here's the thing. When you go to the negotiating table, Jacoby Myers is going to put down, well, here's the numbers over the last two years. I am comparable to this player. So I deserve comparable money. Whereas the Patriots are going to say, well, let's just look at last year. You're not comparable. And that's that, you know, that's gonna be that's gonna be the sticking point. And generally the players win those win those conversations because some team somewhere is going to buy into well, Jacoby Myers has been more consistent and maybe he still has untapped potential and, and we like that. I don't think the Patriots would be that team because they're generally not that team. But that's you know, that's where it gets interesting to me. I look at him eight million per year is probably about right, because again, I think he still does have value, but especially if the Patriots are going to do this whole Shanahan thing on offense, they need guys who can create after the catch. And that's just, he's not that kind of receiver. He ceases to be a scheme fit. If they're going to go that way and you're not going to pay somebody that kind of money who is potentially going to get schemed out of your system. So that, that that's where I'm at with Jacoby right now. I think this is a big year for him. I, you know, I, I say this all, if you're taking notes on what I'm saying, you're trying to cold, take me write it in pencil. I'm saying this all in pencil. This is all subject to change. But as we sit
0: here today, that's how I feel about it. I have concerns about extending Jacoby Myers for too much money because you mentioned the yards after catch. I have a stat right here from Pro Football Focus. I looked up receivers that had over 100 targets last year. So we're talking about high-volume guys, right, 100-plus targets. There was 37 of them. in yards after catch per reception on average, Jacoby Myers was 36th out of 37 receivers in yards after catch per reception and yards per route run. So just taking the amount of routes that he ran divided it by yards, he was 31st out of 37 in that high volume category. So it's very clear to me that Myers is not a high volume guy. Is he a nice slot receiver? Is he maybe somebody that is better used or better suited in a good offense to the amount of targets that let's say, Danny Amendola used to get as kind of that predominant slot guy, but not the full-time Z receiver that was Julian Edelman, right? Amendola was sort of that secondary option inside. Is he a useful player in that role? I I think so. But I think in terms of him being a a 100-plus target guy for your offense, what the stats show you is that he is one of the least efficient high-volume guys in the entire NFL in terms of, how much yards he actually puts out relative to the targets and the receptions that he gets. It's a role that has inherently for 20 plus years, just put out all sorts of production from Troy Brown to Dion branch to Welker to Edelman. Now to Myers, you play the slot in new England, you're going to catch 80 plus balls. You're going to have over 800 yards and you're going to push a thousand. Like that's just, you show up and that's what's going to happen. I didn't think they can get better players inside than Jacoby Myers. And if I'm Jacoby Myers, I want to get this done before the start of the season because I look at some of the other weapons that they now have in their offense. Kendrick Bourne, Devontae Parker, if Trey Nixon makes this football team, getting more targets for guys like Hunter Henry and Johnny Smith. Is he going to have the same target share that he had last year? Is he going to have 126 targets again next year with all these guys in their second seasons with the Patriots or guys that they're going to try to implement now? I think there's going to be less opportunity for Jacoby Myers in this offense as well this year. So if I'm Jacoby, uh, like you said, you put down that Hunter Renfro contract. I think Russell Gage got from the Tampa Bay Buccaneers three over 30 with $20 million guaranteed. That's a nice deal to sort of work off of his production has been better than Gages. Uh, it was better last year than Russell Gages was, but they're comparable level players. If I'm Myers, I'm trying to get the Patriots to give me that deal. Now If I'm the Patriots. I'm more than content in letting him play for 4 million bucks this year. I think that's the way that they're going to end up going because like I said, he's not going to have, he's not going to, everybody kind of expects him to have a, an even better season than last year. I think the I think the targets are gonna go elsewhere, right? I, I think Bourne's gonna see more targets. Parker's certainly gonna be now involved in the offense. I think his numbers are gonna take a dip, and then he's gonna take a dip in the wallet uh, when he tries to negotiate a contract next offseason. I like Jacoby Myers, he's done everything right, he's worked hard, he's the he's the consummate patriot way type player, right? UDFA right. carves out a role, becomes a starter. But I'm not sure that he's ever going to maximize that role any more than he already has. Is he going to ever be better than this with the athletic profile and with the yard after catch profile that he has? Like he's not going to all of a sudden become a much better athlete that can get in and out of contact and create explosive plays and run after the catch. Right. I I just don't know if he's ever going to be that type of guy. And at this point, you probably would have seen more of a feel and stuff like that of that happening.
1: Yeah, the other thing I would say too, I, I, this isn't exactly how things work, but let's do a fun little thought exercise here. Yeah, the Patriots have, you know, the thing with the Patriots receiver core right now, and there's positives and negatives to this. They have a bunch of number twos, right? They've got a bunch of, of supporting, you know, role players. They don't have that that star wide receiver, and maybe they'll make that work. But you kind of look at okay, how's the roster going to evolve, and you you budget X amount of money for the wide receiver position. If you, you know, Myers is 4 million right now. Let's say that just comes off the books next year. Then you have Nelson Aggle or 14 million. That comes off the book. Would you, so basically it's, would you rather give, you know, so that's 18 million you have to play with, right?
0: Yeah.
1: Let's say you give 10 of that to Jacoby Myers at wide receiver. What are you really getting with eight, right? Uh, You know, versus, you could have $18 million worth of wide receiver money coming off the books. What does an $18 million wide receiver look like? I mean, I'm, I'm just looking at it right here. Well, now it looks like Christian Kirk. So that could be a problem, but other than that, you know, it's well, no, Brandon cooks got nineteen eight. Right. Yeah. You know, Amari Cooper got 20. If you stretch a little bit, that's a low end. Number one, but that's a number one. Yeah. So also I don't think Christian, I think teams realize Christian Kirk's absurd. Yeah. I, I, I think that's its own thing. Right. Heck, Alan Robinson got 15-5. Yeah. So you're kind of in the right ballpark there. You know, if if you take Aguilar and Myers out, if you let those guys walk and you put that money into one receiver, that's a legitimate upgrade.
0: Yeah. That's sort of how I feel about it. I just would be wary of giving Jacoby Myers anything over $8 million a year. I think if they're willing to have a hometown discount of some sort and he's willing to take a little bit less to stay in New England, then that's a different animal. But – if he's going to try to cash out as he rightfully should, I'm not saying he shouldn't go out oh, sure. to get all the money that he possibly can, but if he's going to go that route, I, I would probably let some other team pay him. If he's going to get eight, nine, $10 million a year on the free agent market, you mentioned some other, you know, use that $18 million and kind of resurface it to somebody else. Look, uh, I'll continue to say it. If Washington's shopping Terry McLaurin, like that's the guy, right? Like that, those yeah. are the types of guys that you would love to see New England try to get their hands on and maybe reallocate some of those resources from Myers and Aguilar and uh, even Parker I think has an out if it doesn't work out or if they want to try to free up even more money at wide receiver. They've they got plenty of money next offseason, so that's that's not a problem, right? That That's going right. to be – easy to do uh, next offseason, so we'll see what happens there. Let's get to some of these questions, but I I think that the Myers conversation, it's one of those tricky ones because he's such a consummate patriot. He did everything the right way. He carved out his role. He outperformed Nikhil Harry. The first-round pick in 2019 gets outperformed by the street free agent. We've seen this happen all the time at corner, right? Like J.C. Jackson outperforming Jawan Williams, right? It's like sort of the same thing. But it's, a, it's just not a player that I don't, I, just like with JC, I, I don't necessarily see them overextending for Jacoby Myers, right? I think they kind of know what those guys' ceilings are and, and where right. kind of the cap is of a player like that. I want to take a second to shout out our friends at betonline.ag. It's the NBA Finals, the Celtics. Go sees Maybe you want to place a bet on Jason Tatum and the hometown team. Our partners at Bet Online continue to be the number one source for all your betting needs and sports info. Find all the latest odds, news, and sports developments, including this year's NBA Finals. Go Celtics. The NHL Hockey Conference Finals. Major League Baseball scores. And all the latest fighting news and even next season's early NFL Finals futures bet online is your continued source for all your sporting wagering information from live betting to playoffs esports and more head to the website or use your mobile device today to sign up today to receive your 50 percent welcome bonus on your first deposit just use our promo code clns50 to get that bonus and get into the action bet online where the game starts want to talk offensive line let's talk offensive line because i if, out of anything, when we're looking at the offense right now, as Ashley asks here, what do you make of the new O-line configuration? I actually really liked, and I get it's minicamp, I get it's June, I get it's not padded practices, all that kind of stuff aside. I actually liked some of the things that we saw from the Patriots offense last week. I thought Mac threw the ball really well. I thought some of these new receivers, Parker, uh, Trey Nixon is a real thing. You know, that that looked really good out there for two days. The O-line worries me a little bit because there's a ton of moving parts, right? It's just you're flipping sides with your tackles. you got two new starting guards. Pretty much the only guy that is in the same spot that you feel really confident about is David Andrews at center. What do we make of the O-line configuration? Do we feel like this line has the potential to be better than the line last year? Because last year, by all consensus, Patriots had a top five, top ten offensive line in football last year. Especially towards the end of the season, once they put Ted Karras in and got Trent Brown back, this line it feels like there's a lot of uncertainty and question marks heading into training camp.
1: Yeah, I like Trent at left tackle. I-, I wanted that since they resigned. I'm a big fan of that. I I still think Michael and Wendu is a better tackle than he is guard. I still believe that. So, yeah. you know, you're getting closer. If if you move on Wenu out now who's going to play right guard. I, I was really high on Chase and Hines. It appears like he's not ready to get on, on the field. Yeah. Um, is it Arlington Hambright? Is it true? Desjardins? Who knows? Right? right. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, I, I I'm optimistic. I'm not there yet. I think there's still questions, but I think, I think there's tremendous value in having Trent Brown at left tackle. I really do. Um, there's also but like you said, there's so many unknowns, like what's Cole
0: strange going to be right. So, yeah. Um, Call it cautiously optimistic. So there's not a given that any of these players are going to be upgrades, right? That's the concern that I have. Trent and Brown is. Trent Brown's an upgrade if he's healthy. I guess yeah, okay. Isaiah, okay. Okay. yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. also I got a health wild card, to be fair. So it's not like I'm saying that Isaiah wins any more of a security blanket over there. But Trent Brown hasn't been healthy since 2018 for the full season. He's missed time in the following three, uh, the last three seasons. You put on top of that that. Cole Strange looked great in shorts, right? Like, looks like athletic, can really move. I think that they can implement some of the blocks and some of the things that they do with him on that left side, Uh, screens to his side, outside zone runs to his side, getting him out and getting him into the second and third level of the defense. He can really run, and he's a really good athlete. He looked in, uh, I I thought, and you kind of look at some of the concerns down at the Senior Bowl and what other scouts had concerns about him. Play strength, pass protection technique, raw in that regard. I I am not 100% sold that Cole Strange is going to be an immediate upgrade over Shaq Mason or Ted Karras, right? I think that there's a lot of things that he will do better than those two out of the gate, which is probably more about the athleticism stuff I was just talking about and being able to get out and move. But in terms of steady consistency week in and week out, I don't know if he's going to be as solid as those guys were you mentioned on when maybe better at tackle than he is at guard. His tackle tape is probably better than his NFL guard tape at this point. I still think, yeah. I still think his body type and I still think ideally he develops as a guard and maybe with more experience at guard, it goes that direction, but you still have to have some development there from Mike on when to then say that he's better uh, than Jack Mason uh, is at right guard. And then there's the Isaiah Wynn question, which we've talked about a lot on the show already. I still think, and this is just my tinfoil hat conspiracies here going on a little bit, but I still think that they're having Isaiah Wynn play right tackle because they're really seriously considering moving him before the start of the season. And then, like I said last show, you're not displacing two spots. You're only moving on from one spot, right? And you kind of know what you're going to get in the other four spots. But if you have two tackles that are flipped. You have two new guards and you have Matt, Patricia and Billy Yates as your offensive line coaches. I'm more confident in Billy Yates, quite frankly, coaching the offensive line at that point. But there is a lot of question marks. And if there's one thing that you look at with young quarterbacks across the league and even quarterbacks that succeed like Joe Burrow, Patrick Mahomes, when they don't get protected, all these quarterbacks look average, right? Like that's just, the nature of the beast. We've talked about not ruining Mac's development so many times on the show right. over the last six months since Josh McDaniels left. Messing around with this offensive line is getting me worried. And more so than maybe than some of the other elements of like, you know, Joe Judge or the the skill positions or whatever the case may be with the play collar. getting Mac, you know, acclimated behind his offensive line and making sure he's well protected that masks a lot of these issues because I'm, I'm confident in Mac's abilities, right? I think he can throw the football. I'm confident in his decision-making, his ability to make plays. Are they going to have the protection and are they going to be able to make the adjustments and have the game plans necessary up front uh, to keep Mac clean? I, it's a big concern of mine in terms of this offense. I I, I think there's like three position groups and we're going to kind of hit on the next one here where I look at him and I say, Uh, this worries me a little bit offensive line linebacker corner, right? Like I think those three spots are the, are the uh, potential landmines for the Patriots right now. And I, I put offensive line on that list. I, I still am concerned about that. The question here about the linebackers. I find it interesting. Jeff Howe had a report last week when he was out at Pat's camp about Dante Hightower and that door not being completely closed for the Patriots, obviously Van Noy, is elsewhere windows out elsewhere hightower is still a free agent i don't think that's completely been ruled out i think what we're gonna see is we had mini camp maybe there's a week or two of training camp get through maybe the first preseason game if the linebacking core is is struggling at that point of the offseason alex i still think that they might dial up hightower and see if he'll come back as an emergency thing if they're not getting out of Rayquan McMillan and Mac Wilson and Cameron McGrone, uh, what they really need out of that group. I'm optimistic that that group is going to provide some more athleticism. Uh, I still don't know how that those p- puzzle pieces fit together. And I still think that they're keeping high tower on the back burner just in case.
1: And I think, you know, he presents value as a leader. I know I'm in the minority on this. I actually wouldn't hate seeing Dante Hightower come back for the right money. Uh, I think he he provides tremendous value as a veteran presence. The other thing is he can do so much, you know, that I don't know that you need him playing 80% of your snaps in the middle of your defense like he was last year. Like, he's probably past that point in his career. But you could bring him back and have him play edge rusher, you know, use him as a situational edge rusher, and I think that's a role he could be, you know, a contributor in. I really do. So I, I'm I'm not ruling that out. I The difference to me between the linebacker and the corner position is – and maybe why I'm not as worried about the linebackers is they, there's so many guys there with potential, right? Yeah. Between Mac Wilson, Cameron McGrone, Raquan McMillan. I, I think there's a lot of upside there. And then Josh Uche too is still sort of an unknown, but he's shown flashes are all four of those guys going to bust I I don't think so. I think at least one or two of those guys end up being contributors. There's there's too much talent there. I'm not saying look, it's not Ray Lewis and Brian or Lacquer and whoever, but there's too much talent there to get absolutely nothing out of that position. They're all young, they're all athletic too. That you know, there's enough athleticism too to kind of be a carrying trait, I think, in that group. Whereas a corner, I, you know, you're counting on a 30, what, 32-year-old Malcolm Butler who has just right. retired and Jalen Mills, who's not a true corner, and then rookies and you know special teams guys, it's different. I feel okay about the linebacker position. I think there's still sorting out. I, I It's hardly cemented. But I think by the time we – and maybe even into September, honestly. It might not look great right away. But I think by the time we get to October, by the time we get to week five, six, I think there's a clear rotation or, or, or setup or whatever you want to call it at the linebacker position. I think it's functional. They're not going to be the 2000 Ravens. They're not going to be the 2002 Bucs, They're not going to be the 2014 Patriots. Right. But I think that they'll have a linebacker group that can compete in the NFL and help them win games. I feel good about that.
0: So I actually agree with you in terms of there's enough talent there that you like to think that one or two of those guys pan out, right? Like all they need is one or two of them to pan out because the reason why I would kind of put linebacker out of those three positions I mentioned, corner line and linebacker, I'm the least concerned about linebacker because you really only need two guys, right? You have Juwan Bentley. You know what his role is going to be. And you really only need like one more or or really ideally two more, right? To stand out, to be able to give you something. It's not a position where you're going to be playing, you know, three, four, five, six guys in a game, right? Like it's really not that type of spot anymore in today's NFL, especially when you talk about Okay, you have the safeties that can drop down, Duggar, Phillips, Jabril Peppers. Those guys are going to be playing on a lot of second and longs and third downs to begin with, and you're not going to have as many linebackers. So you're really just looking at, like, one or two of these guys to pop. You mentioned Uche. You mentioned McGrone. On-ball linebackers, though, uh, some of these edge rushers, because that is what Van Noy and Hightower ultimately were. Were you a little surprised to see Anthony Jennings, like, in the mix during minicamp, you know, where I know you've been the one that's hasn't given up on Anthony Jennings the most out of the two of us. Right. So right. maybe you weren't surprised. Anthony Jennings doesn't seem like an afterthought completely to the coaching staff, as much as he might seem like an afterthought to some of us because he's played so little in the last couple of years since he's been drafted. They're still holding on some hope, I think, to Anthony Jennings. And I think you can throw him in there at the edge position along with Uche and Perkins at this point as well.
1: Yeah, I no, I don't think he should be an actor thought. I think he's a talented guy. He showed a lot of talent at Alabama. Last year he was it's not like he played, he's played poorly. He was hurt last year. Yeah. He he was their second most used linebacker his rookie season. Granted, it was 26%. They didn't really use linebackers, but they showed faith in him his rookie year. And then last year he was hurt. He couldn't play. He didn't play. Like that's it. I I, I don't think they'll they rule him out. I, I I don't think they've ruled him out. I don't think they should rule him out. I'm not saying he's a lock to make the team. I had him as my fifty-fifth player. When I did my roster projections, you get 53, right? I had Trey Nixon's 54. I had Anthony Jennings is 55. He's right there on the bubble to me. You know, if they don't trade for Mac Wilson, I think he's probably on. If yeah. they, you know, I, I, so I, I, I still, I still, I still think he can contribute. I still do. I'm still in on that one.
0: Eventually. I, I think the depth is, a, is something that they're going to have to think about if they're going to stick to a lot of three four looks right if they're going to have two outside on ball linebackers at the end of the line if you go into the season judon obviously uche perkins that gives you three you kind of need a fourth guy right because you think about backing up both sides sort of thing right and if you you kind of need a fourth guy and i think that anthony jennings is unless they're going to go to Marcus Mitchell, right? Unless he carves out a, a role as a UDFA somehow. It seems like Anthony Jennings just filling out that depth chart is going to be that guy because Mac Wilson, McGroan, McMillan, Bentley, those are true off-ball linebackers. Like those guys are not standing up on the edge, right? Like that's not going to be roles that right. they're going to play. If you're going to tar- need depth there, if you want depth there, Anthony Jennings is kind of your your option right? So I, I think that that's kind of why they're getting giving him some run, uh, because there's a chance that they might need him. And, and that's kind of the where they're at with that position. Let's flip over back to offense, look at wide receiver. Trey Nixon, we, he's the star of the spring, right? I mean, I, I wish that we could see a little bit of Trey Nixon already in pads so we could actually talk about this if it's real or not. But I want to talk about not necessarily – whether it's real or not, because we're going to get to that in training camp and we still have to wait and see, but let's talk about it from where he plays and his position on the team. Clearly going to be a slot receiver. Yep, you yep. love that vertical slot idea. I think he's yep, somebody yep. that can do that. Yeah. I,
1: we saw him do it in minicamp, running up the seam, one handed catch over Jonathan Jones. I, I think that's, you know, vertical slot, speed slot, whatever you want to call it. That's kind of his prototype. He, he played, more on the outside in college at UCF so that's more his bag but just size wise I in the NFL that's going to be a little bit tougher for him versus in the slot I think he can create some really interesting matchups so yeah I would I, I, I buy it I totally buy him as a as a modern slot
0: yeah I love him as a modern slot too he's not going to give you a lot more after the catch I don't think I don't think that's necessarily his skill set right and when you start talking about guys that do really well after the catch. You kind of think about the punt returners and people like Edelman and Welker and like those types of archetypes. That's not really Trey Nixon, right? He's a down the field receiver, right? But he can give you explosive plays from inside, right? He can give you slot verticals, ran a couple really nice corner routes during mini camp. That was kind of the route that he kept hitting on with Mac Jones, those, those little post corners, right? That, that sort of look I think is a little bit different. I, I I, I would have he's to go.
1: somebody too. I think he could be effective in the screen game. I he's yeah. quick. He's not just fast. He's quick. He's got good agility. I think, you know, the biggest issue for him, first off, he was hurt in college, a good amount. And I, I, I don't think, I don't think he realized how agile he was like watching him out last year, running routes and, you know, trying to do it all at full speed and everything. He seemed lost. Yeah. He seems to have a much better understanding of his own physical abilities this year. That can go a long way. that, you know some college programs they say hey you're fast run and they don't necessarily coach that part of it the patriots are huge on that part of it yeah. so i i he was seventh round pick but i think there's room for a lot of room for natural development with him uh so like, yeah. like you said he's a deep threat but i think he can be a screen guy too and i think in in time in another year he could turn into a bit of an intermediate guy
0: yeah i think a good comp for him and and hopefully he pans out to be a little bit more consistent than Scotty Miller, but he's definitely more Scotty Miller than he is like Wes Welker, right? Like uh, in terms well, of he, he actually Hogan. kind of reminds me of Chris Hogan. Yeah, I could see that. I think he's faster than Chris Hogan, but yeah, Chris,
1: I, people I, didn't realize how fast Chris Hogan was. Yeah, Chris, no, Chris Hogan was—he's right. faster, but Chris Hogan yeah. was sneaky fast. I think Hogan was bigger.
0: Yeah, I think uh, like listed height, I I don't know, but in terms of it, look, he looks bigger, right? And we'll see what Hogan
1: I, six one two ten.
0: Yeah. I think Nixon's um, like just over six feet. Oh no, six six oh six one
1: one eighty seven. So
0: yeah, definitely thicker.
1: Yeah. yeah, but I like that. It it looks a little similar to me. Chris Hogan, how he was used in New England, like give Trey Nixon that role. Yeah, I think he could contribute.
0: Mac Jones throwing vertical slot routes, he drops dimes right like that. Those touch throws where he has all that sideline to work with. That's why you love verticals from the slot so much is because when you're inside the formation it really gives the quarterback and the receiver, the receiver, a lot of room to run into and the quarterback, a lot of room for error with the throw, right? You can really right. get some air under it and drop it in the bucket. Whereas when you're on the sideline, you have the sideline as, a, as kind of another defender, right? You have to keep them out in bounds with the slot fades and things like that. It's much easier Uh, to drop those throws in and Mac really throws some beauties uh, when he's got guys that are either tight split, you know, X receivers that are in tight or just guys that are running straight verticals from the slot. He can really drop those on a dime. And and that's what we saw with Trey Nixon. I, I, I don't mind the Chris Hogan comparison. You know, I think back in the day, when Dion Branch was manning the slot, there was a little bit more verticality to it at that point in time, right? He was a little bit more of that bursty up the field type of receiver than the jitterbug underneath the defense type. There's a lot of like about Trey Nixon in terms of what he can bring in, in his role in the offense. Let's hope it translates. It's pretty cra- crazy, though. You mentioned last year at camp and what he looked like. Not only did he look lost mentally, but like physically just didn't look like an NFL receiver yet. It, it goes to show a year of development in an NFL strength program, working with the pro receivers and working with pro coaches and pro uh, conditioning staff. What a difference a year can make for a guy like that. You know, he he just did not look like he was ready uh, to be in the NFL last year. This year, it looks like a completely different human being. Right. Yeah. All right. Let's talk scheme. So our friend D22 here always asks this question, so we'll get to it today, about why we haven't talked as much about the Alabama LSU spread system that Mac used at Alabama that Joe Burrow runs a little bit of in Cincinnati and those types of things. Look, we've talked about it plenty. We just haven't seen the Patriots do it, right? like Until the Patriots actually do it on a football field, whether it's practice, whether it's minicamp, OTAs, or out there in an actual game, and we start seeing RPOs and we start seeing pre-snap motion and we start seeing some of these spread elements that he ran at Alabama, it's not that we're discounting it as a possibility or I'm discounting it as a possibility. I, I just haven't seen them do it. So it's kind of hard to look at it and say that they're going to do it when they haven't done it. What we've seen out at practice uh, in the OTA practices and the minicamp practices was the Shanahan stuff, was outside zone, was bootlegs, was uh, moving pockets, was that type of thing. So if they were out there running RPOs and running Alabama spread, we would be talking about it, right? We would be saying they're running Alabama spread or they're, you know, kind of give hints or drop hints that that's what they're doing. I still hope that they do some of this. I I still hope that this is something that they go to. We just haven't seen them buy into that fully yet. And, And I've heard some, you know, rumors that Belichick has always been a little bit fascinated by the Shanahan offense and has kind of wanted to go towards the Shanahan offense for a while, but that was never McDaniels thing and that's not what they ran. So I think that there is some internal support behind going Shanahan style, but both of us would love to see them implement the Alabama offense here. Like that's what we've been clamoring for.
1: Yeah. That's, I mean, that's what I want. I, again, we can't talk about them doing it when they haven't done it. It's just not how anything works, but I, I'd love to see it. That'd be pretty cool.
0: Yeah, I look, I how many times have we said there were the the word RPO or the phrase RPO here and ha- wanting them to put RPOs into this offense. I I I feel like a broken record. I I've tried to stop saying it because I used to say it so much, right? I mean, that's right. really even with the Shanahan stuff in there, you know, some of the Shanahan stuff, it's not they don't major in RPOs in, in San Francisco, but they do it more than the Patriots did. Right. And I think now with Trey lands, they'll definitely do it more than the Patriots. So it's not that that scheme is completely, you can't do it at all. Right. Like I, I think you can right. do it some, and, and I, I'm interested to see if they do go that direction. I, I would love for them to go that direction, but I, I don't know if they're ever going to do that. I, I just don't, I'm not sure what it is. Maybe they just like, don't believe in it. I don't know. You know, like, I, I don't know what they, why they don't, like it you know I mean maybe
1: well although for for what it's worth there was a report two, I think two weeks ago now that Bill O'Brien was in the building yeah kind of as a consultant for Bill Belichick at some point this offseason so that that's that's Bill O'Brien's offense the offense we're talking about we're dancing around is, is was Bill O'Brien's offense nearly you know got a quarterback to the we nearly won national championship last year yeah so maybe there's elements of it on the way Yeah,
0: that's true. Bill O'Brien was in the building, as was Jed Fish. Jed Fish had – Yeah, well,
1: Arizona went 0-12. Yeah, I know, but Jed Fish was on the Patriots
0: staff a few years ago. But before he came to the Patriots, he was with Sean McVay in Los Angeles. When they hired Jed Fish, I I, I thought maybe that they would bring in some Shanahan stuff then, right? I thought that was kind of an inkling that they were going to do some Shanahan stuff. But that wasn't the case, at least when Jed Fish was here. Uh, some other offensive coaching staff or scheme questions. What do you make, a, a, if you have a take on this, Alex, of Nick Cayley seemingly getting passed over here a little bit in terms of offensive responsibility, play calling? It seems like his name has completely gone away in terms of a potential play caller.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a shame. I thought him and Troy Brown both didn't get their, their fair due. I thought those are two guys that, you know, been in the system for a while. Obviously, Troy Brown for years as a player first and, and, and now as a coach, I, I would have liked to see them get a shot and maybe they are, you know, we're going off reports. We we don't know what's going on behind closed doors, but the, it's, it's funny. I'm, i you know, everybody's complaining about how they kept it too in house and they didn't really go with anybody outside or whatever. And it's all Bill's friends. I wish they kept it more in house. If they were going to go this route, if they were going to go this route, give me somebody who's been here, give me Kaylee or Troy Brown, but Um, I don't know, maybe in the future, maybe they know the setup they have now is a short-term setup. There's been, you know, some, nothing reported, but, you know, speculation connected dots that maybe they're just buying a year and Bill O'Brien had to spend two years at Alabama or whatever it is. Um, So, you know, maybe, you know, they didn't want to do that to Nick Haley. They wanted guys they knew they could just move out of those roles next year. But uh, yeah, I I thought Nick Haley and Troy Brown both deserved a shot.
0: Yeah, I did too. I would love to see... Troy Brown have a lot more going on in in terms of involvement. Right. I, I just feel like he's a guy that was in the old system, but also understands where the game is kind of going and where it needs to go. Right. Like I, I think he understands how to make life easier on receivers, especially you look at some of the things that they're trying to do with the streamlined, terminology with kind of dumbing down the playbook a little bit offensively you have to think that maybe Troy Brown had a little bit of input in that where he said look my guys just aren't playing fast right like we're we're not playing fast enough we're getting bogged down by think overthinking things you know let's simplify it a little bit more and and maybe that is partially Troy Brown there a little bit I think Haley is another guy too that you know, you look at, like, Tom Palacero. He puts out that list every year of, like, under-the-radar head coaching candidates from the future. Gerard Mayo's on it every year. This past right. year, Nick Caley was on it. So clearly a guy that other people think highly of. The Patriots blocked him from going to Vegas, right? I think Josh McDaniels wanted to bring him with him. The Patriots said no. So they clearly like the guy enough to keep him around. Uh, eventually, maybe he does take on more responsibility. Maybe they're still waiting to kind of i don't know like break them in a little bit more or something you know get get him a, uh you know a little bit more experience but it would be interesting to say uh what happens there all right and let's look at see if there's any more questions before we turn it over to celtics and in boston sports minute time uh, a lot of talk in the chat about Dak prescott for some reason alex i have no there's idea. somebody
1: commenting named Dak or something
0: like that I have no idea where that's coming from. Um, Okay. This question, I understand it's tug-in-cheek, but I do think it's an interesting question just in terms of the depth chart at corner. The three Joneses, is there a chance we see all three Joneses? I know some people just want to see it to make the joke that there's three Joneses on the field or something like that. I don't don't even think it's that funny. Uh, But regardless – Jack Jones and Marcus Jones. Marcus Jones, we haven't seen at all, right? He's been the red non-contact jersey throughout the spring, isn't ready to go because of the shoulder injuries. We did see Jack Jones, though, and he looked pretty solid at times. I think he's still inconsistent up and down like any rookie would be at this point, but he showed enough to give some optimism. What are the odds that either of the rookie Joneses contribute in year one? Because we know that John Jones is going to be out there as long as he's healthy. Uh, he's going to play plenty. So it really comes down to the two rookies. Uh, I, I think we're pretty much in the school of thought at this point that Jack Jones is going to have a role as a rookie. It's yeah. a matter of how much it's going to actually be in terms of playing time.
1: Yeah, I, I think Jack Jones is going to compete for a starting outside cornerback spot. To answer the question directly, when we get all three on the field at the same time, I, I think week 18 against Miami is your best cho- chance because. Marcus Jones and Jonathan Jones play the same position. Generally, there's only one slot corner on the field at the same time. Yeah. So, you know, strategically, it doesn't make a ton of sense to have them both out there. Now, John Jones plays some safety. So maybe that's how it happens. Maybe he goes back to safety. Marcus yeah. Jones steps in in the slot. But I think the best bet would be week 18 against Miami. You get Jack Jones on the boundary. And then because they have so many good slot guys, Tyree Kill, Jalen Waddell, the Patriots decide to use multiple slot corners and they put, put Marcus Jones and Jonathan Jones out there at the same time. Now the question is, can those three all get on the field somehow at the same time as Mac? That's probably some weird special teams trick play or something. That, that is going to take more time to analyze. But um, if, if this happens, I'm going week 18 against Miami.
0: Yeah, I'm not ready to get too excited about Jack Jones yet, but that would certainly make me feel so much better about this defense if Jack Jones turns out to be a player. I do like how he moves. Like, I think you look at the way that his hips, his feet, you know, there's some of the things that you talk about with man coverage guys and being able to shut guys down is being able to stay glued and connected to your receiver and things like that. I I think he has those traits. Like, I think he has those movement skills. I think he has that fluidity. I think the one thing that you looked at him in mini camp and and you have to get him a little bit more up to speed on is, you know, there's going to be some, route details at the NFL level that quite frankly, they just don't do at college level where there's little fakes or little subtleties in the route that he's not anticipating as well as he needs to right now to really take the bull by the horns and be that starting outside corner. But that will come with time and with coaching. And the Patriots are really good, especially when they're coaching press man. Uh, They're really good at getting guys to study Uh, getting guys to understand those types of things so that you're not reacting all the time out there. You don't want to be chasing. You want to be anticipating. You want to be uh, in front of the game. I think that those are the things that will help Jack Jones a little bit. And that was something that J.C. early on in his career struggled with at times, and it kind of came on slowly for him as well. So that has to go back to film, study habits, things that you're not necessarily doing in practice, not like Jack Jones is going back and watching Nelson Aguilar tape so he can get one over him next practice, right? Like that's not really the idea here with these practices. So maybe they can help him out a little bit with that a little bit more. But in terms of movements, ball skills, uh, things like that, I, I think he could play right away. And you talk to, you know, some of the people, like we talked to like Eric Elko right after they drafted him, who worked out with him at the, uh, at the Shrine Bowl down there. And, you know, the, the, there's people around the league, I think, that this guy was – going to be drafted a whole lot higher if his college career goes differently. If he stays at USC as a five-star corner in the Pac-12 and he doesn't have any of the off-field stuff that went on with him in college that caused him to transfer, I think it's a completely different ballgame for Jack Jones and maybe he ends up being a top 50 guy, right? But it just didn't go that way for him and he didn't have that kind of consistency. And I I don't want to like to talk too much about the off-field stuff, but What Jack Jones had going on off the field is nowhere near as bad as what some other guys had going on off the field. The guy tried to get some Panda Express at like 3 o'clock in the morning when he was in college, right? Like we're not talking about anything really uh, too awful. Uh, So it would be interesting to see if Jack Jones ends up being one of those guys where we say, oh, well, he's dropped in the fourth round, but if we redrafted, maybe he would have been a first-round pick or a late first-round pick or something along those lines. Right. All right. There's one more question in here. I'm going to find it um, quickly and then we can move on uh, to the Boston sports. Minute. Is it the oh, question of who
1: our uh, favorite Patriots players of all time
0: were? Oh yeah. We can wrap it up on that one, but this is one more real question. No offense. And then uh, here it is. Okay. Uh, two tight end sets. I think this is an interesting question. Like are the Patriots still, they, they've obviously committed all these resources to Hunter Henry and Johnny Smith, right? Like that that's where a lot of their money is tied up. In terms of offensive skill positions, but are they still 100% sold on being a 12 personnel base? Like, is that the way that they want to be? Or do you see them once again, like last year, they've slowly started to realize that 21 with the fullback, I know they don't have a technical fullback on the roster right now, but Johnny Smith can more or less serve as a fullback if they want to go back to some of those two tight, uh, two back, you know, eye formation, strong eye type of things that they have done in the past. And 11 personnel, three wide receiver, was easily their most efficient and effective personnel grouping last year. And the 12 personnel stuff really faltered. It, it was not as successful as they wanted it to be. Do you still see them forcing it down everybody's throats that they're going to be a two tight end offense and trying to get this Hunter Henry and Johnny Smith thing working. Um,
1: yes and no. I, right. If they're doing the Shanahan thing, I think they'll both be on it's semantics. Is it 12 or 21? If John is on the field and he's doing the Kyle use check role, right? Is, is that a two tight end offense or is Johnny Smith now a fullback? However you want to cut it. I think they're both going to be, Very heavily involved. I think the two of them are going to be very heavily involved in the offense. Uh, I think you'll see a decent amount of of snaps where they're both on the field. I don't know that it will look like traditional two tight end sets. Like this time last year, we're talking about, oh, the Rob Gronkowski, Aaron Hernandez scheme. Like I think that's probably not in the conversation anymore. But I do still think that there's going to be a lot of situations where they're both on the field.
0: Yeah, I think that's fair. And you talk about that Kyle use check role or using Johnny as a little bit more of like an H back or a move tight end instead of that traditional inline that that I think is really where they have to go with this. If they're going to make it work is Hunter Henry is your traditional Y tight end. Johnny Smith is a jack of all trades, Swiss army knife type role. Whenever Johnny is being an athlete, like whenever he's already moving into blocks or he's, uh, motioning across the formation and catching the football on the flat or running into space as a route runner, instead of having to break down and really get in and out of a break. He he looks so much better than when they try to make him into some of the, you know, the more technically refined route runners and tight ends. They they have to get him into that. I'm an athlete type of role and just get the guy to ball in space, allow him to be an athlete and stop bogging him down with all the little technicalities. If you want to run like a precise stick route, or if you want to run a a Y option style play, like you have Hunter Henry for that, right? Like you have, you have that tight end in Hunter Henry. Uh, Don't try to pigeonhole Johnny Smith into a role uh, where he doesn't belong. And I I hope that that's one of the things that they kind of self scouted and went back and looked at. And I, I think it probably will. It was. All right. So the chat for some reason is not letting me go all the way back, Alex, but somebody towards the very, very beginning of the show, Asked us who our favorite Patriots of all time were. Uh, I think, you know, we're not, we're not old, so we're not going to go with Andre Tippett or John Hanna or anything right, right now, Alex, but I'll allow you to start. I'm sure you have a couple. So. You, well, you, I mean, I'm assuming we're doing besides Tom Brady, right? Yeah. Besides Tom Brady. Yeah. I mean, it's Drew Bledsoe. Drew
1: it's who Bledsoe. I grew up watching play quarterback. I, so all right, I'll go offense defense. On offense it's Drew Bledsoe. On defense, it's Ty Law. Ty, Like Pete Ty Law was the yeah. man. you just a bad dude. Like, you were not getting by him. I loved watching Ty Law. He had the swag to just like everything about him, just screen block down corner. So I'll go with those guys.
0: All right. I love Ty Law too. But if I'm going to say favorite Patriot, non Tom Brady category of all time, it's Randy Moss. I, I just never yeah, had. He's up there. I never had more fun watching the Patriots in my life than the 07 Pats and Randy Moss. Like, a- as great as Gronk was in his peak and he was awesome. Like, don't get me wrong, but Randy Moss over the top was the most unstoppable play that I've ever seen the Patriots run. Right. Like I've never seen anybody be more dominant at anything than Randy Moss being, than Randy Moss running any sort of vertical route. Right. Like it just was uncanny how good that guy was. Gronk running up the seam was close, but then they stopped doing it as much because he kept on getting hurt, getting taken out by the safeties going over the middle. So Randy Moss on the deep over, and he kind of brought the deep over to New England. You remember they used to run it as a poster. Is that clip of Belichick and him talking in a football life, I think in 09, uh, where he says, you know, instead of me running into the safety, like I'm just going to run across the safety, right? Like he knows – plays it might have been even uh, 07 I'm sure when he brought that in and he's just running away from everybody like a couple of those TD catches he had against the Dolphins like stand out where there's like three guys trying to chase him you know and he's just running away from the entire secondary uh Randy Moss favorite Patriot of all time other than Tom Brady that I I've ever uh, watched. I don't know if he'll ever be topped. I mean, that guy was just fantastic. Defensively, I'm with you on Ty Law. That, he right. Was some
1: awesome. people in the chat said Rodney Harrison. Rodney Harrison is definitely there. you yeah. talking about a bad dude. Rodney Harrison, yeah. tone setter, leader, all of it. Rodney Harrison ruled.
0: I would also say that, you know, Evan at the time, 9, 10, 11-year-old Evan in the uh, beginning of the Patriots dynasty. Corey Dillon, when he got here in 2003, that guy was a G. Like, that guy was just fun yeah. to watch run the football. I uh, loved Corey Dillon, but yeah, Randy Moss, uh, Vince Wilfork in the chat too. Obviously, good, good shout there as well. Vince yeah. Wilfork was fantastic too. Drew Bledsoe, this guy, this guy, Drew Bledsoe. Well, to, just I don't know if you've ever fully explained to me in detail why you love Drew Bledsoe so much. Because do I don't know take on this. When it, when I like I when I first started watching football, I was probably like four
1: or five years old. I didn't yeah. totally like understand the game, but it got through to me that the quarterback was a very important position. Drew Bledsoe was the quarterback of my favorite team. It just kind of clicked. And like one of my first not my first memory watching football, but like I I had the the Steelers game, the O1 AFC championship game. Like yeah. I just remember that was just a really cool game. I just have like a great you know, I had a great time watching that. And I just thought that really personified what that team was and all that. So, I mean, like, I was like four, like, if it happened now, would Drew Bleds be my favorite player? I don't know. Probably not. When I was like four or five. Yeah. He was the quarterback. I liked the Patriots. He was the quarterback. It was a no brainer. And I just kind of stuck with it.
0: Yeah. I, I would say that my first like distinct Patriots memory was obviously that 2001 run. Like I think that that's when we started to get old enough where we could really, right or the memories right like i remember watching games with my dad before that but not not the actual plays and the things right that exactly yeah uh 2001 you know i gotta give troy brown a shout out too because his punt return against pittsburgh in the afc championship game is is easily like uh, when i try to think of my earliest football memories like that was a big one right obviously i have the snowball and everything that happened right. in the snowball as well but uh, Troy Brown's punt return, uh, Teddy Bruschi, Julian Edelman in the chat. Other good shouts there, too, for our uh, favorite Patriots of all time. I mean, if you want to go uh, Julian Edelman, I don't think anybody uh, will will d- disagree, or Teddy Bruschi. Patriots tried to t- retire Teddy Bruschi's number, 54.
1: But, yeah, he didn't want them to.
0: Yeah, didn't want them to. I don't think 11 ever gets retired because what do you? You know, that's kind of a tricky one, right? Well, Devontae Parker's wearing
1: it now, so it's not getting retired. Like, there yeah. you go. you want the 54 though. 54 should be a thing. Like this is more of a college football thing, but like you should have to earn 54. It should be, you can't show up and say, I want number 54. Like the team says, Hey, we're going to give you 54. And by the way, it can be linebackers or linemen. Brian waters. Wasn't here long had a hell of a year when he was here. But I think like, I think fifty-four should have to be like an fifty-four and twenty-four should have to be earned numbers.
0: Yeah. So at LSU, it's seven, right? Seven's like right, LSU is seven. The, uh, Texas does zero. Yeah. Temple has um, the single digits. Those are like the toughest players on the team, right? The, like, yeah. Hardest nose guys on the Every team. Every school does it a little differently, yeah. but that's like yeah. the um, yeah. So I like fifty-four should
1: have to be like again. You got to be like you can't just choose to wear fifty-four. It's given to you.
0: All right. Let. Are, are we eulogizing the Celtics yet today, Alex, or are we just talking about the Celtics? Which one are we going with on this? Boston it's, a sports
1: it's a little bit of both. I I mean, it's a little bit of
0: both. I wish I was more excited for the Boston sports minute like I usually am, but today this one's a well, little we, good
1: got good, we got good Red Sox news today. We can get to that in a little bit. All um, right.
0: Yeah, let, let's start Celtics, and then we can get to your Red Sox news. But I, where Where do we start with the Celtics? You You start. I mean, they had their chance in game four. They
1: had their chance. I, I, you know, I Wiggins played well, but I I thought the stat line is very impressive. I don't think he played as well in the flow of the game as the stat line suggests. I thought the only true difference maker on the floor in that game was Stephen Curry. They were getting nothing from Clay Thompson. They were getting nothing from Draymond Green. The Celtics should win that game. I know Curry went off and had a historic performance, but the Celtics, thats kind of been what they've done all year. They've played team basketball. They've won as a team. And then it's like, all right, well, if they can't win the game, Curry goes off. They better win the game where Steph Curry does nothing. And that wasn't the case either. Obviously the other night, it just, it, it feels like they've hit a wall. It really does. And yeah. this is where I go back to, Oh, we might have breaking news here. Oh, we do. We have breaking news that is relevant to the Boston sports minute. Uh, okay. Well, we got Bruce Cassidy, the golden Knights. Ah. Uh. Good for him. So they get him. Good for him. Yeah. Good, good for, uh, anyway. Um, I I think with the, when when it comes to the Celtics, I remember everybody saying after, you know, they, they had the bad loss in Milwaukee and they still won in seven. Everybody's, oh, yeah. Well, they choked that game, but they still won the series. It's fine. So it took seven. And then the same thing happened against Miami, right? So it took seven. Whatever. Well, you know, what does it matter if it goes seven? This is what, this is where it matters. The Warriors I think only went past game 5 once. I might be wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure they only went past game 5 once. The Celtics went to game 7 the last two series. Yeah. You're seeing that right now. The Celtics are they're gassed. They're gassed and I think the moment's getting to them. They're still a young team. We forget cuz Tatum and Brown have been together so long. Uh it just it 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 feels like that they've kind of maxed out, right? So I'm not saying it's Ooh. over you know, momentum in this series, in this playoffs does not exist. And they've been good on the road and all of that. I still, you know, if they can just kind of find the adrenaline, I think it's simply an adrenaline rush. If they can get the adrenaline rush going, they can win. I think they're the better team, but it feels like this is where the experience of the warriors and, you know, having played fewer playoff games, you're starting to see that really be a difference.
0: Everybody that I've seen talk about the fatigue thing. Cause he throughout the fatigue thing. Last night, I think, but he was more talking about it in that game, right? Because he was also,
1: he was asked about it. So the question mentioned fatigue. He didn't bring up fatigue unprompted.
0: Yeah. So he was talking more about the fact that the bench didn't give him anything and they had to play the Jays for 40 plus minutes in that game. And they weren't really thrilled about that and thought maybe that's why they weren't as good in the fourth quarter. But everybody always responds, oh, they're 24 years old. Like, does that mean you don't get tired when you're 24 years old? Like, I get the young legs. Like, I get that that's a theory, right? I, I don't think that that's actually backed up by science. Like, playing a grueling playoff run like the Celtics have played is tiring no matter how old you are, right? And I think when they got into the beginning of the series at the Warriors – they were still riding high off the momentum of winning game seven in Miami and getting over the hump and getting into the finals. Now that we're getting into games five, six, seven of this Warriors series, hopefully seven, you start to see some of that real fatigue come out, right? And you start to see this run sort of take its toll on them. That's the biggest overarching concern with the Celtics. And I i, I don't think any of the like little minutias that we can talk about matter if they are truly just burnt out. Right, like none, none of right. the adjustments, some of the little things that they could do truly matter if they're just burnt out. But well, I, some of the things that have happened in the series, I, I tweeted out yesterday, everybody got mad at me, uh, per usual. Well,
1: because you're a green teamer now, you're you're you besmirching the lie. green teamers. There's your famous tweet the green teamers, or whatever they're called, when are they going to stop making excuses? Now you're the one saying the series isn't over. Now you feel good down 3 2. The series isn't over. Just pick, just, just pick a side. That's all no. anybody
0: uh, – we're just asking for consistency from you, Evan. That's it. I, it wasn't that tweet that people got mad. I, I made it – I crossed sports, which I know you're not allowed to do. I crossed sports, and I, I said that Andrew Wiggins' finals is a lot like when Chris Hogan would just go off in the playoffs because all the attention was going to Edelman and Gronk, right? And he was just right. left one-on-one with no help, and he was just free to run all over the field. And he was good enough that he was able to take advantage. He wasn't a complete zero. He was able to take advantage. Now, Andrew Wiggins is a better player than Chris Hogan. He's a better basketball player than Chris Hogan was a football player. The strategy is the same, though, right? Like the Celtics, last night in particular, I thought, they are like face guarding Curry. Like They're guarding him like he's a right. wide receiver. They're trying to smother Clay Thompson. They're trying to limit Draymond Green's playmaking how many times has Andrew Wiggins caught the basketball at the top of the key with one guy in between him and the basket and everybody else is all over the place, right? Like that seems like a still image I've seen like a hundred times in this series to Andrew Wiggins credit. He's taken advantage. And as Celtics said, we have to live with Andrew Wiggins. Like if Andrew Wiggins goes off and we have to live with it, it just thinks that Andrew Wiggins is beating them essentially is what we're seeing in this series right now.
1: Yeah, it, it, but then it, it it's not so much – I to kind of go back to what you were saying earlier, I feel like they're execu- – I feel like the calls are right. Like the strategy is right. Let Andrew Wiggins beat you. Don't let Steph Curry beat you. Like that's right. You just have to execute it, and that's what they're not doing. I think Ima Udoka's game plans are correct, yeah. but the game plan is only as good as the execution. That's what it's coming down to for me. I don't – you know, you, you talked about adjustments and this and that. I, there's there's no adjustments at this point. There's, yeah. a, don't turn the ball over. That's the adjustment. You know, I'm sitting last night. The press is end. I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to write. And you know, oh, I should probably write about them saying turnovers were the problem. And it's like, well, how many times have I written this column? Yeah. This playoffs. You know, it's copy and paste at this point. So it's it's not adjustments or anything. Like I know it sounds simple. I I, I know it sounds kind of a holy, but just play better. That's what it is at this point.
0: Yeah. And don't and turn also- the ball over. Make your free throws. That's yeah, the turnover thing too is not to make excuses for the Celtics, but some of these turnovers are forced turnovers, right? Like the Warriors do play good defense. There's a, there's too many unforced turnovers. No, I, there's, I don't. There's just far speak. too many unforced. No, turnovers. I think offensively, you know, I've seen a lot of stats about the Patri- uh, Patriots, the Celtics' offense over the last twenty four hours in these last two games. Turnovers is the big one, right? Like they, they're turning over the ball way too much. The other one is is that they're getting into things way too late, like. You look at when the Celtics take shots versus when the Warriors are taking shots. So much of the Warriors' offense, and a lot of this is because of the turnovers, is in transition or in the early portions of the shot clock, right? Like they're getting good looks early on in the shot clock. The Celtics, how many times do the Celtics spin the ball back up to Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown with like seven seconds left on the shot clock, and they just have to go one-on-one against somebody and score? There is no flow to their offense right now. And when there's no flow, I think that's when a lot of turnovers happen because you're trying to make plays with up against the clock, right? You're trying to make plays late in the shot clock. You're trying to make passes to get that one open look that you might get in a 24 second span. And I think they're playing sped up and it's forcing them into mistakes. So, credit to the Warriors a little bit. I I think, you know, I think a lot of people are saying Celtics are throwing this away, you know, things like that. it's not totally unwarranted. But I do think that you look at some of the things that the Warriors have done to slow down their process offensively and make them grind out possessions. This this Celtics team wants to run. They want to shoot threes. They want to get out in transition. And the Warriors just haven't really let them do that. And I think that's a, a, a kind of a big problem. Uh, with this series as well, is it over, Alex? Or, are we pronouncing it dead, or or do you give him a chance? I still give him a chance, just the way these playoffs
1: have gone. But I, you know, I wouldn't put any money yeah. on it. I don't feel great about it. This isn't, you know, this is, it, it, and the whole thing with like, well, they haven't lost back to back games, and oh well, you know, they came back three when, when you know before last night, or yeah, last night. Oh, they haven't lost back to back games so far in the playoffs, and it qui- went at- to Game Seven against the Bucks. You know, they were able to have this bounce-back success against those teams. This isn't the Heat, yeah. this isn't the Bucs. It's a different animal. Yeah. The, the Warriors are better than, than both of those teams. I, I think it's – you can't necessarily lean on that to make a projection here.
0: Yeah, when we started talking about the Celtics, I said that if they're just gassed, if they're just burnt out, then none of this – and nothing else that we say in the next 10 minutes matters. I still stand by that, and if they're, they are truly just gassed and burnt out, then they're going to lose game six and the series will be over right but something tells me that maybe they can de- reach deep and, and pull out one more win on their home court to push it to seven I, I don't like their chances at all in game seven at that point but get it to seven see what happens right like that's always the mantra when you're wait wait wait, doing- wait
1: hang on hang on i repeat repeat all that real quick
0: i think that they have a chance to win game six once we get to Game Seven in San Francisco, I think it's. I, I don't think they win Game Seven. Okay, I thought like, you
1: said if they don't win Game Six, you don't like their chances in Game Seven. Which, no. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, if they I lose Game them. Six, I don't. I really don't think they're going to win Game Seven. I think that would be kind of a tough one.
0: More. I tough like their usual. chances in Game Six. I don't like their chances of winning the series. How about that? Right? Because they're not going to. I don't like them winning Game Seven. It, it's it's tough. It's been tough uh, to watch them. Go up 2-1 and kind of throw this away, but I was trying to remember this last night. This is basically what happened to Phoenix last year, too, right? They they were up right. 2-1 in that series against Milwaukee, and you, there's some parallels there in terms of the youth and things like that, and they have the one veteran, Chris Paul. The Celtics have the one veteran, Al Horford, that's never won, right, but has been a decorated player, right. has never won. There's a little, a lot of parallels between the Celtics and that Phoenix team last year. What's your Celtics news, uh, Chris Sale related? Or sorry, Red Sox news? I, I'm yeah, just that.
1: I, I, you know, Chris Sale going to come back. Supposedly they're going to get evolving and Whitlock back soon too. Put Chris Sale in the bullpen. Don't start him. Don't do it. He'll yeah. get hurt in three weeks. They need help in the back end of the bullpen. I knew. I know people say, oh well, you can move, you know, Whitlock back to the bullpen. Well, you could also do that, but he's been fine as a starter. He yeah. hasn't been great, but he's been fine. Chris Sale's not a starter anymore. Don't do it. Don't try it. It's not going to work. Also, holy crap, do they look like idiots for not paying Raphael Devers. My yeah. goodness. His price has increased substantially yeah. since the beginning of the year.
0: He's got to think, if they make the, I, I know baseball's not like big on, you have to make the playoffs to be the MVP of the league because they give the MVP to the league to a non-playoff guy all the time. But Raphael Devers got to be in the play, MVP conversation, right? I mean, his... His batting numbers are like top five in every meaningful category yeah. from everything yeah. I've seen. Yeah, he's he's having a fantastic season. Do you like Chris Hill at the back end of the bullpen, or do you like him as like a, the long relief guy? Because I kind of like Tanner Houck as the closer. Like I, I think Tanner Houck might be able to close, but maybe either way. Like if you have Chris
1: no, Hale, I I I, a, I, I agree with that. I, I think, at least to start, you can't make Chris Sale the closer right away. You just can't. You can't, after having not pitched yeah. in almost a year, you can't just put him in high-leverage situations. So yeah. maybe down the road, if how starts to falter, I wouldn't rule out making him the closer. But in my mind, it's kind of what he did in the playoffs last year, where uh, or not, not last year, um, whatever year that was, where, I mean, you know. If, if you don't get, uh, you know, a ton of length out of the starter, you kind of use him as the fifth, sixth, seventh inning right. guy, something like that. Maybe yeah. you pair him with Garrett Whitlock where, you know, okay, we can get four with Whitlock and four from sale. And then, you know, the closer if, if need be. Yeah, I'd, I'd make him that kind of middle inning stretch guy, two to three innings an in outing, two to three outings a week. I think that's probably the best use for him right now.
0: Yeah, I love that. I think that would make their, their bullpen a whole lot better. I just want them to – to zero in on maybe, maybe it's Sandra Howe because I think he has good stuff and he's got the the moxie for it to be a, a true closer. How many, they lead the league in blown saves. I know that, right? And I, I think I saw a stat the other day. They have maybe more blown saves than actual saves. Like, I, I think that's a real Yeah, I just, I
1: don't, I don't think their team, they don't have any arms in the bullpen that are consistent enough to lock in a true closer. I think yeah. you have to be fluid with it because they don't have that guy unless they make a deal at the deadline. If they go out and get a real closer, then – It's not Hansel Roles, so I'll tell you that. No, no. It's a, if I see a guy point one more time, anyway.
0: It's not Hansa Roles. All right, so a few uh, things to tie this up here with the Patriots. Go back to uh, Patriots here for a second. We did get training camp dates officially today, or the beginning of training camp. So the Patriots will open training camp on July 27th, uh, July 27th through the 30th or the 1st for open practices to both the media and the public at training camp. Uh, they will have joint practices with the Carolina Panthers in Foxborough. They will have joint practices in Las Vegas with the Raiders uh, before the preseason finale. Those are the things that have been announced. And I'll uh, say the 2023 NFL draft announced today in Kansas city, yep. April 27th through the 29th. We're already thinking about the 2023 draft here on Patriots beat. So, uh, but the training camp dates, it's only 317 days away, Evan. So, Wow, Again, you did, just kind of that very. How, you don't did, even know how many days training camp is away, but yeah, you know how many days that. Forty-eight. There you go. Forty-eight. But, but
1: no, three hundred seventeen. Evan, that's not like realistically. How many prospects are there going to be that, that that you need to know more than three hundred seventeen? So get started today. I pitched this to Evan off the air. I One wanted like today. we need we need content before camp, right? No, do I'm serious. Do a prospect today, starting today. I'll do it with you. I pitched this to Evan before before we came on the air. Because we need content before camp. I want to do, like, a, obviously, like, draft-centric college football preview. I I, I think, you know, it, what else are we doing this time of year? But, um, yeah, you only got 317 days, dude, so step on it.
0: There we go. I got to get going. All right, so training camp July 27th. And uh, right here on Patriot Speed, we'll be back on Thursday. We're going to debut a new segment. I'm going to speak it into existence. We've talked about it a little bit, but we're going to debut a Throwback Thursday segment every Thursday. Alex and I are going to go back and watch a sequence or a highlight of an all-time classic Patriots game from the Patriots dynasty, and we're going to break it down uh, right here on Patriot Speed talk about the ins and outs of the play, talk about the key players involved, and uh, reminisce a little bit about some of the all-time great Patriot moments and Patriot plays for the last 20-plus years. So that is our Throwback Thursday segment. So we'll have that on Thursday. We'll probably field some more questions as well on Thursday, and uh, we'll get Alex out of here so he can go cover Game 6 and watch the Celtics hopefully extend the series to Game 7. But until then, signing off for Alex Barth, I'm Evan Lazar. Thanks for watching, everybody, and we'll see you Thursday.